Good evening and welcome. It's Michael James Lauren with the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. Our special guest tonight is world-acclaimed scholar and theologian, Dr. Christopher Wright joins us. The book is called The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. You're about to find out what the Bible's mission really is and the mandate that Christians have. Dr. Wright is the international director, or I should say the director of international ministries for Langham Partnership International. It's known in the United States as John Stott Ministries. And he had a good relationship with John Stott. Uh, Dr. Wright, what time is it where you are? Well, here in London, uh, Michael, it's uh, 6 o'clock in the evening. Well, welcome to the program. Dr. Wright, I want to ask you, you know, your book, The Mission of God, uh, you grew up in a missionary-minded family very early on, and you were able to flesh out through this book what missions really is. I guess more importantly, are we understanding what the mission of God really is? Can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration for the book? Well, you're right to say that uh, I, I grew up certainly in a home that was very missionary-minded. My, my parents had been missionaries in Brazil uh, in, uh, for about 20 years, actually, before I was born. I'm the, I'm the youngest of four siblings. Uh, but when they came home, and in our home there were lots of missionary artifacts and uh, uh, missionaries passing through and all that kind of thing. So I was very well aware, even as a young Christian in my teenage years, that uh, mission was something that was a normal part of a Christian's life. It wasn't uh, something extra special for a very few people. So when I then went to university and, and on into theological education, uh, that background, I think, probably shaped some of the ways in which I would think and read the Scriptures. But, of course, uh, what I then began to discover was that mission wasn't just something that came from the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, but uh, was actually woven through the whole um, narrative of the Scripture from the beginning to the end. The trigger, really, for that was spending some time uh, teaching at All Nations Christian College in the UK, which is a a graduate-level college training people for cross-cultural mission, and uh, teaching the Bible there forced me to ask those kind of questions. You know, how does this text of the Bible relate to the realities of cross-cultural mission? What questions do we need to ask of the text? What questions does the text ask of us? And as I worked on that, uh, it became more and more clear that this was a theme which which runs right through the Bible. And so I, I tried to build a uh, a missional hermeneutic of the Bible, as it's sometimes called in technical language. In other words, reading the Bible from the angle uh, of the mission of God, not just what missionaries do, but God's mission uh, through the whole of time, uh, from the creation to the new creation, uh, filling the whole of the Bible. So that, that it began then, um, really, I think. Dr. Ryan, I like how you mentioned that the Bible informs us through the text on how to live. I'm not sure sometimes we get that as Christians. I think a lot of times we just kind of have an idea of what Christianity is, but we have our marching orders, if you will. The Bible does inform us. Uh, I want to ask you about missions, because a lot of times in the church we understand there's a picture of missionaries, and you are to give to missions. Uh, we got that down, but uh, I'm sure it kind of ends there. Are we? Do we have a, a kind of a stilted understanding? of the word missions? Yes, I think it's very interesting that uh, in, in your comments there you were using the word missions, uh, which generally speaking means uh, missionary activities, that is the sending of people out on missions overseas into cross-cultural international situations. And of course that is a very important and vital part of the missional work of the Church. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is that while it is a very important part, it's not 
all that the Bible has to say about mission if we begin to think of mission in relation to answering the question, who are we as the church and what are we here for on this planet Earth? In other words, what is our reason and purpose for existence? And in order to answer that question, you have to go back and ask, well, why did God create the church in the first place, or the people of God? Because I don't think the church only begins with, uh, with Jesus. It, it goes right back to God's calling of Abraham uh, and to the Old Testament. And once you begin to ask those questions, then you find, well, uh, God called Abraham in order to be a blessing or to be the agent of bringing blessing to all nations on earth. So that was God's intention from the start. Uh, and so then you begin to see that, that, that God's purpose for his people includes the whole of their life, all that they are and do on this earth, and that includes the Old Testament Israel, it includes the people of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore the going and making disciples of all nations uh, is not something that just missionaries do, it's something that is actually part of our reason for existence as disciples of Jesus. It was a command that was given to the disciples, and we're all disciples of Jesus if we're followers, if, if Jesus is living within us, then that involvement in the mission of God or participating in God's mission is something that uh, applies to all of us, uh, shapes our lives, shapes our existence, uh, and is much bigger than just missions in the narrower sense of specific activities that missionaries do. It's such a beautiful way to look at the Bible and to look at salvation, and the reason that Jesus came, uh, not only to set us free from our sins, but to make us active participants in this world, imaging Christ to the world, and uh, of course sharing the good news of the gospel. We really have quite a purpose here. It's not just on Sundays, you could be sure of that. So I have to ask you, how are you challenged as far as the idea or the concept of missions or the mission of God, uh, how were you challenged personally? I was challenged in terms of the, the hermeneutical element of that. In other words, is that a legitimate way of reading the scriptures? And so I thought, I have to defend that. I have to actually work out whether this is uh, a legitimate, right, and proper way of reading the whole Bible. As I worked on the text, as I thought through the uh, relevance of uh, creation, uh, of God's call of Abraham, of his gift of the law at Mount Sinai, of the theme of redemption, of the Exodus, and then, of course, right through to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his proclamation of the kingdom of God, uh, and then the launch of, of the, the church and the power of the Holy Spirit, and also the, the future vision of God's new creation, that what we're heading for is not just some kind of obliteration of everything, but ultimately a renewal and restoration of all that God created in the beginning. What Paul talks about of, of uh, God bringing all things in heaven and earth into unity under Christ, that these are vast themes that run right through the scripture from beginning to end, and they all connect around the centrality of the, the great gospel story, the good news, that the God who created the world has acted through Jesus to save the world, uh, and that includes people from all nations, and it includes creation itself. So it's, it's a vast theme which fills the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And, and that, uh, as I worked on the book, as you can tell, it's a fairly big book, uh, that, that, that became more and more something that I saw the the beauty of as well as well as the challenge of and and it becomes a, a transforming vision because it it effectively changes your own perspective from thinking well you know how do i fit god into my life and how do i you know do some mission for god occasionally rather it asks the question how does my life fit into what god is doing in the world it it, it totally reverses the way we usually think about our lives and about god's purpose for us 
you know, that makes me feel kind of guilty as a Christian because, I mean, I have the tendency, I'm sure other people do too, that you want to live your life and then you have so much space to be able to let God into your life or to be able to live for Jesus. But that's not at all what God is saying as far as the mission of God or the purpose of God. I mean, he, he kind of spells it out for us and shows us who he is. He reveals everything about himself to us and we're living in his world and, uh, you know, the son that he provides and so forth for, including the Son of God, Jesus. So um, it is very convicting. Um, Are you surprised that we as the church can be passive and lose sight of what the mission of God is, and as you say, what the grand narrative of the mission is? Whether it's surprising or not, it's certainly very sad if if the church loses the plot. Uh, In other words, if if Christians forget the story that they're supposed to be in, we, we are meant to actually be participating in God's great narrative, God's great story for this planet. We have to live in this world, of course, so in a sense we, we, we have to share to some degree in the world's story because we are citizens, it's our culture, but we're supposed to live in this world but not belonging to it. In other words, we live for God's story, which is ultimately to bring about redemption and salvation for creation. And if the church loses that sense of, of being missional, of, of being here for a purpose, then it's, it's really no longer functioning as God intended. It's, it's, it's lost its, its sense of or its reason for existence. Um, it, it may be a bunch of religious people who get together to do things like that from time to time and enjoy themselves doing it. But, uh, but the other point I would make, though, in answer to your question, is that sometimes people think, well, does that mean we all have to go out and be evangelists and missionaries uh, and preach and teach? And, and my answer to that is no, it doesn't. Because, uh, yes, there are those whom God calls specifically, uh, into ordained pastoral ministry or called specifically into cross-cultural um, missionary church planting kind of work overseas. But most of us, God calls, and I use the word very explicitly, God calls to be engaged in uh, work uh, in this world within creation, serving the community, serving the world, uh, using the creation and the resources of creation for God's purposes, and to be doing so for God's glory, for Christ's sake, and in a way that honors Him, uh, and then in the process of that, bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So mission then, as I keep saying, is not something that's just left for missionaries. Mission is not a task or uh, a speciality. Mission is a mode of existence. It's, it's the way Christians live in the world. Uh, and that means living within the story of God's mission and living for God uh, in the whole of life. It, it, it's, it's whole life discipleship, not just Sundays and not just missions. Yes, we all play a part in God's purpose, that's for sure. Sometimes, though, and this is, I'm speaking on behalf of the church, I, I, maybe I shouldn't do that, but speaking on behalf of Christians, perhaps, we tend to think that Sundays, the important day, uh, uh, worship, certain, maybe even religious activities people feel. But what about people in secular work? Uh, do we lose sight of what the mission is there and how we're to serve Christ and, and play a part in this grand narrative? Sometimes it doesn't really feel that in the mundaneness of life that what we're doing is all that important. How would you respond to that? Uh, some people have this idea that being on the earth is simply a, a sort of a prelude to go into heaven. It, in other words, nothing that we do here on earth actually matters very much. Uh, and that, I think, is a very negative attitude, a very 
disabling attitude because it leaves a lot of Christians who are in so-called ordinary day-to-day secular work, um, leaves them feeling that what they do isn't important to God, whereas the Bible, it seems to me, shows that there are lots of people at work in the Bible whose work was often in a pagan environment, people like Daniel or Joseph or Erastus in, in, in Paul's band of people. He was a mayor of Corinth, for example, who were believers but were engaged in the secular arena, in, in the public sphere, and that's a hugely important sphere of work. There's, a, there's another book that I wrote called The Mission of God's People, which was published by Zondervan, which was a sort of sequel to The Mission of God, and, and one of the chapters in that book uh, is what does it mean to be the people of God in the public arena, uh, in the marketplace, in, in the world of, of business and architecture and the arts and uh, science and agriculture and industry and all of those areas. What is God's mission for God's people in those regions? And, and I, I think that's an important question to be asking as well. That's a very good point. Boy, we can really be somewhat uh, self-absorbed, can't we, as uh, as believers even, thinking about our own lives rather than the entire mission of God uh, all across the globe and the nations, and that's what it's all about. So how do we reconcile this tension? Do you feel there's a tension for the Christian because of not feeling all that important in the regular things that we do? How can we make a difference? Well, there's always a tension for the Christian because, we, as I said, we live... Uh, in two worlds, uh, and also we live in two zones. We live in the here and now, but we also live for the not yet, because we're living for the ultimate kingdom of God, which is still ahead. So there's always a tension between uh, the fact that the world is, is full of sin and brokenness and ordinariness and suffering and pain, all of those things, um, and, and we, we have to live within that, but we live with a different narrative, a different vision, a different future, uh, and a different past, because we live in this world as though it is what it is, God's creation, and not just material uh, stuff. So yes, uh, I think once we get a hold of the vision of, of God's mission and our part in it, it does lift up the ordinary. I mean, the, the, many of our older Christian hymns used to sing of this. Sadly, we, we've lost so many of them and don't sing them anymore, but there's that lovely one called um, Teach Me My God and King and All Things Thee to See, that what I do and anything I do as unto thee, which of course is taken straight out of what Paul wrote to, to the slaves in, in Ephesus and Colossae, you know, that they could be Christian slaves working for a pagan boss, but they could still work as unto Christ and work for the Lord. And then the next verse of that hymn says that the servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. In other words, even a servant, even the act of sweeping the streets uh, can be done for the Lord, can be part of the way in which we serve God by serving others. So it brings a tremendous richness to life when we begin to see that, that the Bible affects the whole of the way in which we live. We live within that story. It's not just something that I apply on a Sunday uh, or to specifically Christian activities, uh, but that the whole of life is brought within the sphere of discipleship to Christ for the glory of God. Yes, there is a big picture for sure. You pointed that out in the grand narrative of the Bible and the mission of God. So let's turn our attention now to your book where it says, The Nations Are Sharing the Identity of Israel. 
I enjoyed that very much because it says the most breathtaking visions concerning the nations that we saw in the Old Testament are those that envision them eventually becoming one with Israel. Now, as a Jewish believer who has come to Christ, sometimes I get confused when I tell people that I've come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, He saved me, and people say, how did that happen? As if in the grand picture of things, people have forgotten about Israel or uh, their identity in Israel. Can you explain what you mean by that we share our identity in Israel? Well, the word Israel there, of course, I'm meaning Old Testament Israel, the Israel, the biblical Israel, it needs to be stressed. I mean, partly because, maybe because I'm more of an Old Testament scholar than a New Testament one, uh, and so uh, therefore even in the book reflects that. But then actually, you know, most of the Bible is Old Testament, so it, it's, it's, it's not a bad mistake to make. Uh, it is, I think, sad that so many Christians in, in the modern world have lost that sense of their roots in the people of God, uh, going right back to Abraham. Because it's clear that when Jesus comes, he doesn't come to start a new religion. Jesus doesn't come along and say, right, guys, you know, we've had this Judaism stuff long enough. Now we'll start a new religion and we'll call it Christianity. That's a complete fallacy and farce, really. Uh, Jesus came in order to complete what God had been doing for a couple of thousand years since he promised it to Abraham. Uh, And therefore, it's the God of Israel, of the Old Testament, who is now bringing about his promise through Jesus uh, to bring salvation to the world and therefore to extend that salvation uh, which had up to that point been confined to the people of Israel in the Old Testament to bring that redemption, that promise, that covenant to people of all nations who would come to faith in Jesus the Messiah. And that's what so much fills the writing and teaching of the Apostle Paul, of course, in Romans, Galatians, and elsewhere, is this tremendous reality that uh, that God has now uh, extended the reality of what Israel is, namely the people of God, the people within the covenant, extended that to include people from all nations who come to faith in Israel's Messiah, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. So that's, that's what's meant by saying that... Um, the the identity of Israel uh, is shared with people of faith in all nations. Um, it's 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 the whole purpose for which Israel was created in the in the first place, because God said to Abraham uh, that through you, i.e., the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, Israel of the Old Testament, through them, uh, God will bring that blessing to all nations. And Paul says that's what's happening. That that's why the gospel must go to the Gentiles. So it's it's the inclusion of the Gentiles within the purposes of God, within the people of God, that uh, frames the whole missionary drive of the early church in the book of Acts and in the, in the Apostle Paul. Yes, and in other words, what I'm trying to say is also that a Messianic believer, myself, sometimes they're between a rock and a hard place, if you will, only because the Church identifies so much with the New Testament, and I'm thinking, well, you have so much Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and uh, to embrace that, it would it would feel that we would all share more of the same identity. What do you think about that? But it's what he longs is for... Uh, his own Jewish fellow believers in the God of the Bible, the God of the Scriptures, to find the fulfillment of their Scriptures and the fulfillment of their hopes in Jesus of Nazareth and to come put their faith in him. So, uh, yes, and and I I have many friends also who are uh, Messianic Jewish believers in Jesus uh, and uh, love them dearly. I think it's it's a wonderful reality. And it is sad that they do sometimes struggle to, uh, you know, to, to find understanding um, among the, the more Gentile 
Western Christian communities, um, but they are a living reality. They are indeed exactly what the Apostle Paul was. Yes, and getting back to some of the frustrations of a Messianic believer, just to mention one other thing, sometimes the identity isn't there for the uh, Messianic believer only because in certain denominations of Christianity, they nullify the identity of Israel because they claim they were unfaithful and that the church is the new Israel, and it gets a little bit confusing. But the way that I see it, and I hope you do too, is that unless God remains faithful to his promise to Abraham, all these other promises are untrue, and we know that God is faithful to his promises. How do you respond to that? Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm due to preach on Romans 9 to 11, uh, this in, in a couple of Sundays, and that's exactly what Paul is saying there. He's saying, what would be the point of Gentiles putting their trust in the God of Israel if the God of Israel had broken his promise to the people he made it to in the first place? So in Romans 9 to 11, Paul has to prove that all that he's been saying in Romans 1 to 8 about God's faithfulness, God's covenant, God's promise, God's salvation can apply to Gentiles, they can trust him because God has not broken his promise to Israel. In fact, he has fulfilled it by, by fulfilling his promise to Abraham to bring in the Gentiles so that the inclusion of Gentiles within the people of Israel is in fact a fulfillment of his promise, not a breaking of it. So the faithfulness of God and the, and the truthfulness of God are absolutely essential to Paul's whole missionary outlook and, and uh, missionary endeavor to the Gentiles. Otherwise, why should anybody trust God uh, if God doesn't keep his promise to Israel? And Paul's argument is he has and he will. Uh, and, and so the truth both that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah whom Israel has been longing to and the truth that God has kept his promise to his people. As, as Paul actually says that in Acts. Uh, he says that what God, uh, to, he says this to the Jewish synagogue uh, in, um, in Antioch. He says, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled by raising Jesus from the dead. So the death and resurrection of the Messiah is the way in which God has brought about that fulfillment of his promise to his people, and then that opens the way for the inclusion uh, of the Gentiles, as he goes on to explain uh, in, 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 in the rest of his writings. Yes, amen. And, you know, Dr. Wright, I have to mention that after reading your book, The Mission of God, truly, because it is an exhaustive book as far as a study and theological exposition, I came away knowing Jesus much better. I'm, I'm so glad that that uh, happened for you, Michael, because it's part of my intention, because I love Jesus, too. And, in fact, I wrote one of my earlier books was called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. Uh, it's also been republished by IVP, InterVarsity Press. Uh, and, and that is a conviction of mine that uh, if we really want to know Jesus, we need to know the scriptures that he read, that he studied, that, uh, from which he found his own identity. Uh, I mean, you know, as we read the Old Testament, these were the stories that Mary would have told Jesus, you know, when he was a, a child. These were the songs that he sang every Sabbath in the synagogue. These were the prophecies that, that he searched uh, in relation to himself. When he was tempted by Satan uh, in the wilderness, what is he doing? He's meditating on Deuteronomy because all the quotations of Scripture that he hurls back at Satan come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 8. So clearly... Uh, the more we understand the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament, the more we will understand uh, the self-identity of Jesus, who he thought he was and why he believed he had come and what other people saw in him. Uh, so the whole New Testament is really 
an understanding of Jesus in the light of this, the scriptures, as, they, as he called them and as they did. Uh, you mentioned unlocking the Bible's grand narrative. Can you just explain for our audience, really, what does that mean when you say the grand narrative? The grand narrative is the overarching story of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation. That is the story which comes in approximately six major parts. There's the creation uh, of God, uh, God creates the world, and then the Act 2 is the rebellion. We rebel against God, make a mess of it, the entry of sin. Act 3 is God's great promise to Abraham and the story of Israel. God's moving forward on a journey with his people, but it's all pointing towards Act 4, which is the gospel story of Jesus of Nazareth, his conception, birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then in the book of Acts, we come to Act 5, which is the outpouring of the Spirit and the mission of the Church, which is where we are today, still in the Bible, in the Bible story in Act 5, until eventually we come to Act 6, which is the new creation, when we read of... uh, a new heaven and a new earth, uh, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and all that God will bring about that we read in Revelation 21-22. So that grand narrative is the unifying, overarching theme of the Bible as a whole. And the problem with a lot of Christians is that they think of the Bible just as a book full of promises, or they think of it as a book full of doctrines, or a book full of rules, and they completely ignore the fact that it is essentially a story. It's the story of creation, the new creation, the universal story of the world we live in. And once we get hold of that, we say, yeah, and this is a story I'm living in. This is my story. It's where I am. I'm part of what God is doing. That becomes a much more exciting way of reading the Bible, because I read it, as it were, from within, rather than simply as something that's, that's outside of myself. One of the things that uh, I teach a lot in the uh, in the Langham partnership that I work for, we have uh, preaching training uh, in many parts of the world. And one of the things that I emphasize for, for biblical preachers is the need to preach any passage of Scripture within the context of the whole overall unity of the Bible. Um, and it's something certainly that, that John Stott believed, who founded Langham Partnership, and which we try to inculcate in those we seek to train. Yes, amen. And it's true that the Bible and the story of the Bible is not outside of ourselves, like many of us think, that get lost in the mundaneness of life, that we are a part of God's story, and He, uh, what a gracious God to let us in on the whole of creation and that whole grand narrative that you just mentioned. I want to get back to your relationship with John Stott, because he was an important, influential mentor to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with him? He was one of the most respected clergy in, in the world. Well, I had heard John Stott, of course, as a, as a student in Cambridge in the 1960s. We first met in 1978 when he was perhaps in his heyday immediately after the first Lausanne Congress for World Evangelization, which took place in 1974 and produced the Lausanne Covenant. Uh, shortly after that, uh, I had graduated with my doctorate and I was ordained as a pastor in the Church of England. Uh, and he took an interest in myself and my wife and family, as he did, of course, with many, many other uh, younger uh, men and women who were uh, in their 30s at that time. Um, So we we kept in touch over the years, uh, and then when I returned from my uh, personal missionary experience uh, in India, where I was teaching uh, in a theological college there, he invited me to be on the board of trustees of the Evangelical Literature Trust, which was one of the 
uh, ministries that he had founded to get books into the hands of pastors. And that work then eventually merged with the Langham Trust, which was uh, seeking to fund scholarships for men and women to do doctorates and then return to teach theology in their seminaries. Uh, and so in 2000, uh, he asked if I would take on the leadership of what has now become the Langham Partnership. Um, and, uh, and and so I took that over from him when he was about 80. <laughs> uh, he, he was 80 in 2001, and then we worked together for those remaining years uh, until he died in 2011. But he was, as you say, a very great man, but a wonderfully humble, uh, gentle brother uh, with a, a, a wonderful sense of humor, uh, as well as a great ability to preach and teach the Bible. Dr. Wright, before we close, I want to tell you one funny story. When I wanted to contact you and have you on the program, of course, and find out about your life and the book, The Mission of God, I had sent an email, and I was excited to get a response back, and I did get a response back. And the response was, you've reached N.T. Wright, not <laughs> Christopher Wright. And uh, N.T. Wright, who, of course, we know, a world-famous scholar as well, he sent the information, how I can get in touch with you at Langham Partnership. And uh, he was a very gracious man about that. Of course, I had egg on my face. I was embarrassed, but... Uh, uh, perhaps he'll forgive me. Do you know uh, N.T. Wright, by the way? I, I know Tom Wright quite well, yes. Uh, I, I'll tell you another funny story is that he is, of course, N.T. Wright. He's Nicholas Thomas Wright. I'm Chris Wright. But uh, in several seminaries in the United States, um, I get called O.T. Wright because so much of my work has been on the Old Testament. So he's N.T. Wright, and I'm O.T. Wright. <laughs> no, I, I, I have, a, have a strong admiration for his work. I think he has brought a, a holistic biblical emphasis uh, and he seeks to show the significance of Jesus and Paul in the light of the scriptures of, of Israel of the Old Testament. And, and that, I think, is an essential thing that we need to do. Yeah. Well, we've enjoyed our time with you, Dr. Wright. Thank you for being on the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. The Mission of God is the book, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. It's wonderful, and it will bring you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. May God richly bless you. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you, Michael. God bless you, too.